How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to episode four of our podcast series, live from the Expo floor. In this episode, we will discuss the theory of paramedics beyond EMS. Another fantastic guest with me here today, Dr. Clayton Kazan is here. He's the medical director of the Los Angeles County Fire Department. Doc, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, Doc, we, uh, we were speaking um, in one of our other podcasts about the progression of paramedicine and where we're going. And, and this is going to be a lot about that as well. But in your eyes, where do you think paramedicine is going beyond EMS? What, what, what are some of the things that we should be transitioning into? So I think that we need to start thinking ourselves beyond EMS and start to look at ourselves more as a mobile health platform. Right. And then think of EMS as sort of a service line under that umbrella. Okay. So I, I'm always really careful when I message this. The goal is not to replace EMS. There's EMS works. It does an outstanding job at, at taking care of emergency people, doing those, those key interventions and getting people to the hospital quickly, getting to the right specialty centers and doing all that stuff. There's nobody better. But EMS, if, if all we are is managing those critical patients and getting them to the, the right hospitals, what are we doing with all these other patients that are reaching out to us that aren't critical? Right. If all we are doing is transporting them to the hospital, we're not necessarily offering them or offering the healthcare system much of a value. Right. And it's argued now that keeping patients out of the hospital seems to be, you know, the fad now. Like, let's be honest, you know, we're cutting down on costs and everything else involved in this. And like you said, not everybody is to that level that needs to go to an emergency department. We need to decompress these these you know facilities so that those that do need to be there have room and you have the resources available to them. So with respect to, you know, paramedicine beyond EMS, you know, there are so many different things that are already in play. You know, we spoke about this earlier, ET3, community paramedicine, those types of things. But, you know, what other things are, are we speaking about specifically? Advanced, uh, advanced practitioners, those type of things. In your eyes and, and, you know, specifically on the West Coast, what do you see, what do you see happening right now? So crisis breeds uh, innovation. Yeah. Certainly. And if, if COVID has taught us anything, which we kind of already knew this, but it was a good demonstration to the rest of society. And that is that our current model of emergency medicine, and this pains me to say as an emergency physician, but it's completely unsustainable. 100% um, agree. We were, we were turning our back on our full waiting rooms and providing horrible patient experience for so long. Uh, and we had no real surge capacity because the whole system is designed around uh, staffing to just just enough staff because staff is expensive that you had no surge capacity so when we got hit with the winter surge which hit us really hard back in Southern Cal in uh, November December January um, the the system got completely paralyzed and it bled all the way into the EMS system where we had our ambulances held captive at the hospitals uh, critical patients couldn't be offloaded we were out of units to send to critical calls but it, so it really opened our eyes that one of the things that we need to do, and we're not getting a lot of help, unfortunately, from the healthcare system or the hospitals uh, or the emergency physician groups even, is we need to start taking a look upstream of the ER and not just having all of our triage be down there. 
But upstream, what is the right level of care for what the patient's complaining about? In California, for us, um, you know, we've had a community paramedicine program that's been going for several years, but the, the training program was all run by UCLA and that got shut down. And politically speaking, we keep bumping into the, the nursing association, we keep bumping into the emergency physicians that push back on anything that's perceived as a scope of practice expansion for paramedics. So we took a different slant. We followed the Mesa Fire Department model, and uh, we also followed a model that LA City and Anaheim were doing, and we went with advanced practice providers. So the, the beauty of that is in California, California's broken into 33 LEMSAs, which are local EMS agencies. And generally it's one LEMSA per county, but some of the smaller counties band together to have one. So the uh, Los Angeles County LEMSA, they oversee paramedic and EMT operations, and then they report up to the state EMS authority. But nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and physicians are not supervised, they're not regulated by those bodies. They're actually regulated by the Board of Registered Nursing or the Medical Board. So by doing this, we were able to actually really jump up the scope of practice that we're putting out in the field uh, overnight without having to get permission from the EMS agencies and the, and the state. We did work with our EMS agency. We have a really good working relationship with them, and they put some requests to us as we built out these units. But So we are big believers in the APRU, or the Advanced Provider Response Unit model, where we pair up a nurse practitioner or physician sometimes when we can't staff one of one of the, uh, the medical directors ends up staffing it, <laughs> but it's kind of fun. I'm doing it on Sunday. <laughs> but um, so then we go out, we aim at the low to medium acuity call. So everything in our system is designed around high acuity. What are we going to do with the major trauma patient? What are we going to do with the STEMI? What are we going to do with the stroke? Historically, we put very little attention into what are we going to do with the frequent flyer? What are we going to do with the people with abdominal pain who don't really necessarily need to go to the emergency room? What are we going to do with the, the broken ankle? So this unit particularly goes to those calls, assesses those patients, and then tries to refer them to other levels of care, primary care, urgent care, psychiatric urgent care centers, dental care, all the different things that come into the EMS system so that we try to whittle down what we're actually sending to the ER to something that's more appropriate to be there. And it's a very innovative approach and it works. And the question I have though is do we should we have one of those boards that recognizes the paramedic side of this? Like the board, the physicians have it and the nurses have it, but why do we not have it? And that's the question. Like, what is it going to do to get us over the hump so that, because that just brings about credibility. You know, once you have that, it's credible. So I, I look at this in, you could train a community paramedic to do most of what our nurse practitioner does. So would you rather take a paramedic and I, I spent several years as a medical director for paramedic training programs. We train our paramedics mostly to look for high acuity, right? Correct. We want you to, to see the chest pain or even the weakness and nausea. We want you to see the STEMI patient there, get the 12 EKG and route them correctly. But when you have a patient that doesn't need any of those interventions, does that mean that they're low acuity? Right. It, it actually doesn't, right? We don't, we don't have any means other than checking pulses in the field to know that someone's an aortic dissection. Right. So there are things that don't have any indication for an intervention in the field that can still be critically ill. Uh, or appendicitis, right? Appendicitis is a legitimate ER visit, but there's no intervention to do in the field other than transport them. So we'd have to take our paramedic core and provide them with some real training in differential diagnosis to really recognize, yes, these, this big subset of people that don't need an intervention Within that big subset, this is the group of patients who 
really don't need to go to the hospital. So we could do that, and uh, community paramedicine programs did that, or we can take a different pool of people like the nurse practitioners and train them who have that skill set already and train them to work in a field environment. And for us, because we had no pool of community paramedics at the time, no ability to train them, and we were bumping up politically against a lot, some monstrous bodies up in Sacramento, we opted for the nurse practitioner approach. And for us, it's worked gangbusters. Now, is that ultimately something that you foresee trickling down to the paramedic side of things so that they can start to progress and you know have that type of uh, responsibility that these nurse practitioners have? And and how would that work with, you know, being a fire-based service? You know, how does that work? Would you be able to take somebody off an engine for a day? Or would this be their their specific role within the department? I'm just curious. So we operate still on the John M. Roy squad model. <laughs> and I, I'm realizing that some of the listeners are probably they not going to no know what idea. I'm talking about. Yep. <laughs> but, but please go to YouTube and yes. look up Emergency Classic. and Squad 51. But uh, so... I think there's gonna be some meeting in the middle. I definitely think we're gonna be expanding the paramedic scope of practice. One of the things that finally passed in California is being able to triage psych patients to psychiatric urgent care centers that are much better for the patient, much less wall time, and a a more therapeutic environment wholly dedicated to psych. It took two rounds through Sacramento to be able to get the bill passed, and it's gonna require eight hours of additional training for every paramedic participating in the program which is not that much, except we have 1,300 paramedics just in our own department. So it'll take us a while to get there. So we are gonna bump them up, no question. But I'm a big believer in building out the toolbox. So I can take a paramedic and make them a jack of all trades and training them up to do a lot of different things. And they're a super motivated workforce and they can do that kind of stuff. It's definitely within their abilities to do it. But then you also run into problems. You develop these jack of all trades. What happens when they promote or retire or go off on injury, now you've lost this skill set that's very that's really hard to train. So I actually like to build out the toolbox. I like that we brought in, uh, we have a fire department pharmacy. So we have, we brought pharmacists into the mix and found a way to justify them from a cost perspective. Um, we are bringing in nurse practitioners. I'd like to see us bring in social workers and case managers to work with our high utilizer groups. So, I mean, I could train a firefighter to do the social work side, absolutely. But when that firefighter decides to promote up to captain or, or whatever, I'm going to lose that skill set and have to start all over from scratch. But if I brought a social worker in, then I could have that skill set and be much more readily replaced with another social worker and just train them up for the EMS environment than having to train a, a firefighter paramedic to do all those things. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many interesting points to this. And I think, you know, we were discussing earlier the impact that COVID has had and, you know, how important, you know, when I say EMS, EMS specifically, how what an important role they played in the, the COVID response, you know, and that recognition that came along with that was so important. But yeah, I think you're right because you're starting to see systems literally go to the term mobile health. It's not really EMS anymore. Um, and I think that that, I don't want to say holistic approach, but probably all parts of, you know, this, this type of care for the patient is important, which we, we got off the, we, 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 you know, hit, hit the ground running with ET3 and with community-based paramedicine, but we still have so much more to do because like you said, you know, you're, you're fire guys, you know, uh, we, we can go on about fire EMS forever, but your fire guys, many of them really got into it because of the EMS where that's not really the norm in other areas. So they want to be helpers. They want to do more. I'm, I'm sure of it. Yes. We have quite an army. Um, I, I, we were talking about, of course, before 
that uh, sometimes in, in parts of the country, there's a big knock on Firebase EMS, but uh, Firebase EMS is how EMS was birthed in California. It has always been that way, and a lot of people who really have a passion for EMS get into the fire service specifically to do it. So it's not necessarily the same issue that other people have in other other places. Just just like the saying goes, if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, Doc, there's the, the times they are changing. Uh, you know, we are in the middle of a global pandemic, and and we're just trying to figure out ways where we can progress as an industry. Because I, I think you hit it pretty pretty well when you said that I don't think that we can continue just to call ourselves EMS because it's only a part of what it is we're supposed to be doing and it's, it's very antiquated um, you know go, you know the fee-for-service type model they it has already been proven you know not sustainable so you know how we look to do this in the future is, is going to fall on you know strong leadership um, governmental assistance and things like that is to where we're going to go but ultimately we realize that as as EMS, we're there for the patient, and we just want to help. Um, and and ultimately, we want that that same opportunity that these other industries have and have gotten. You know, between nursing and physicians and PAs and everything else, there has to be another area of specialty for us. I agree. I, I think that the answer is we need to be able to give our paramedics upward mobility throughout the healthcare world too. Right now, at least in California. Once you reach paramedic, you can transfer some of those credits over, but for the most part, that's kind of a dead end. Right. Uh, it's you hit a ceiling, and then there's nowhere else to go. There's not, there's not a, a, a bridge program to become a physician assistant or a registered nurse or or to be able to navigate around the healthcare system. So it, to us, that's kind of the end all, be all we have in our department. Um, you also hit on a couple other points that are key, and and that is, we need to get some support from other stakeholder groups across the healthcare industry. The hospitals, because they are still largely a fee-for-service system, it's not really in their interest to, to jump out and stop transports to them. Right. Um, as unsustainable as it is, as expensive as it is, the hospitals have really not been partners. They're kind of interested in us. The big ones that, that would need to jump in are the healthcare payers. And unfortunately, so far, the payers just don't quite know what to do with us. They still <laughs> look at us as transport. And when we raise our hand and say, hey, I've got these top 10 utilizers, which in LA County Fire, our top 10 utilizers average 89 calls per year and 67 transports. <laughs> We'd like to do something about these patients. Can you help us get them resources so that they don't call so much? They just don't really know what to do with us. Again, all they think about us is we're the, we're the ones that they pay to take the patient from point A to point B, not necessarily ones that could intervene at point A and, and block the need to transport to point B. Yeah, and I think that it's safe to say that the ER is the gateway to the hospital. So getting patients through the door, it's it's tough to scoff at to say, hey, don't let's not transport. Because again, to get into the hospital is a big deal. That's a huge revenue source. So there's a lot of obstacles. Let's be honest, Doc. We're not going to solve this thing in a day. But the communication needs to happen. The dialogue needs to happen. And, and quite honestly, we need physicians like yourself to be on board to promote these types of things. You know, whereas we're, we're progressing, we need to sustain our industry. And so I really do appreciate you coming on, Doc. Um, My pleasure. It was, it, it's great chatting with you. It's always great getting a different perspective from a different side of the country. And, uh, you know, so, so many interesting points. So, Dr. Kazan, I really want to thank you for coming on. And I want to remind everybody... Continue to tune in. We have 13 total podcasts over the three-day span here at the EMS World Expo floor. We look forward to seeing you at the next one. This is Mike McCabe. 
Talk to you soon. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 